0: Church, uh, my name's Colby. A couple quick things uh, just to get out of the way. I don't know if you got to make it to the play uh, Friday night or Saturday afternoon, dude. It was awesome, and uh, yeah, shout out uh, Laura Krokos and Deb Ireland who who did a lot of that. And I'm just so grateful that using the arts to share the gospel. And that might be one of the largest outreaches our church has done, just to share the love of Jesus with other people. And I know there's a lot of other people in our church uh, that put in sweat equity to make that happen, and that was just unbelievable. Um, Another thing, just right out the gate, uh, we go verse by verse through the Bible, uh, is our regular habit. We'll take breaks every once in a while, but our habit is just to go straight through. So uh, you're not getting a Mother's Day sermon, uh, but I do want to say some things about mothers as an intro, and then we're going to pray and get into the text Um, One thing that um, has staggered me um, as I come into Mother's Day every year, it's kind of a day for me just to remember, like what Ronnie said, the vital role that God has given mothers in families and in our church. Um, Like, I, I know a lot of you know Pam Foster, got to meet with her. She's kind of finishing her race. And getting to sit down and walk with her and talk with her and pray with her and listen to her, Like, you're sitting with a church mother who many in here are not her biological children. Matter of fact, I don't think any of you are. But she's hugged your neck and prayed for you and given and counseled and encouraged. There are women in this church that have no biological relationship to many others in this church, but they have assumed... A position as a mother. And our church is better for it. And there are women that are currently. Still got kids in their homes. And they feel like they're drowning. And they're a witness to us. And there's young ladies in here. And girls. That are going to be mothers one day. And we're a culture in our church. Of raising up mothers. Whether that is spiritual mothers in the faith. Or if that's raising up mothers who raise their families well. Like that's just like a key for us. And we are a church that's blessed with so many great women. Who make us better. Amen? Now I want to warn you. Because I thought about this. One of the greatest Christians I ever knew was my grandmother. Who was a... Like, she ended up mothering me because I was raised by my grandparents. And here's something that staggered me. And I want you to think about this and then we'll be done with it. There was a day... That I sat next to my grandmother in church for the last time. And I didn't know it was the last time. More than any gift that you could give your mother this Sunday. I would argue is the gift that you set next to them right now. in this. There's nothing you could give your wife or your mother than sitting next to them. And I'm going to tell you. They have a role in your life that has a shot clock on it. And then they're going to be gone. And... Whatever it was, it's done, it's run its course, and however you're going to live in response to it is however it's happened. But you're, listen, mothers in here, your kids are going to be this little and sitting next to you being too loud in service for a season. And it's going to be over, and you're not even going to know it's over until they move to Montana and they're not sitting next to you anymore. Do you hear what I'm saying? Young people, there's going to be a time... Where you're going to want to go to church with mom and you're not going to be able to. God has called us for a season of life together in this church to love one another well. And so um, my encouragement to you as pastor, take every advantage of that. Because one day it's going to be over. And I just pray that with the days that you have, that you cherish it and that you exalt God through it. And that you let the mothers in this church lead you to Christ the way that their heart longs to. And I know this day could be as painful for some to have wayward children or moms that have went to be with the Lord. And so let their witness do what it's supposed to do. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll get in the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you created femininity and you created all mothers, And what was lost in the fall and how they've been perverted and broken and messed up. God, you have redeemed motherhood in the cross of Christ. It's not about moms. It's about your glory. It's about your word. It's about your gospel. And so, Father, we come asking for you to become the pastor here today. That you would be rabbi, master, and teacher. And that, Holy Spirit, you would come and enable our hearts... To receive the good seed of the word. God, for people in here that may be storing bitterness or baggage or distracted with the pot roast to come, God, would you give us just by your Holy Spirit a miraculous ability to listen today, to hear not someone on stage speaking, but God, to hear you. And so come, convict us of our sins and where we are hypocrites, guide us to the gospel that we might find forgiveness of sins and turn and praise your holy name. And so this is all about you. And so um, make Jesus clear. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. If you've got a Bible, it's really helpful because we're a church. Mark chapter 12. Uh, open your Bible there to what was read earlier at verse 38. As a bit of a jog, I want you just to reflect on the fact that there's connective tissue from where we've been with we had Jesus dealing with the solo scribe who came to Jesus with a good question and a good response. So we have a singular scribe who is not far from the kingdom of God and who is has a positive, if you will, interaction. Then we move to Jesus taking what is commonly taught by the scribes, which is not wrong. He's actually affirming that they're teaching something wrong. The, the issue he has with it is it's half true. What they say about the son of David is true, but what the Bible teaches about Jesus as the son of God is fuller than that. And so we have the good solo scribe picking up on the scribe's teachings, and now we're going to have Jesus warning us against particular kinds of scribes. Let me kind of first back up. I know we've addressed scribes throughout, but I want to Kind of jog and refresh our memory about who are these scribes. At the outset, we have to understand the scribes were used by God and had a good ministry to the people of God. The scribes like transcribed scripture and copied the scriptures. They would so memorize the Bible that if you took a book of the Old Testament and rolled it, they would dedicate their whole life to memorizing every jot and tittle of that book. And it was said that if you took a needle and stabbed it through that scroll, a scribe could tell you every Hebrew letter it would hit. I mean, these are people that memorized the Scripture. They taught the Scripture. Some of your translations may even say teachers of the law. They educated um, people about God's Word. Many of them, by, by and far, were Pharisees, who Jesus, even throughout the Scripture, particularly on like the resurrection, would affirm that their teaching over and against that of the Sadducees. So I start with this idea that they they were people of the book, which should land on us here a little bit more directly, right? And they had out of this role that they served developed honorific titles of stuff like rabbi teacher master and people address them this way and um which is interesting whenever people kind of ask me what is my title here at the church i've like i avoid titles right especially here in Durango like most people don't even know what a pastor is and if they do they got it from like Something online, and I don't want to be associated with that. Sometimes it's easier just to describe what you are. What Baptist pastors get called is much more vulgar and not able to be repeated in the pulpit. But in the synagogue and in the gathering that they had, they occupied a bench in front of the Torah scrolls. So behind, they would have scrolls, the actual copies of Scripture of the Law and the Prophets, and they had a bench in front of that they sat there. Some of you come from certain denominations, and feel free, raise your hand. On stage, the elders sat the whole service. Anybody seen that before? It's like one person. Yeah, or two. That's good. Baptists, we give them the exalted back row, all right? <laughs> if you're in trouble, you got to sit in the front row. Um, someone sat on the front row last week, and it actually, like, threw me off. Um, right? They get the honored seats. So in like some churches, they have these like mass. If you've seen this, like massive thrones, that the elders said, Nothing against that, but that's kind of parallel to where they, even during the sermon, during the worship service, they're up here and they face the opposite direction. Where like for me, I can see you guys, right? So that's where they sat. So these positions um, were exclusively posted up, and for them looking out, they were positioned. They were educated they were visible, they were respected, and partially for very good reason. Because of this, they were often, as people, invited to banquets or parties because of their prestige. It's like um, inviting, I almost said a politician, but that would actually accomplish the opposite in this crowd. Um, Inviting someone of clout or respect to your party, and it just kind of turns your party up a little bit. This special saddest meant that when they went places, people honored them. Because inside of Scripture, there was no place that said that they were to be provided for from offerings. In the Old Testament, the Levites and priests got their um, provision from uh, the gifts of God's people. Just like in the New Testament, pastors and elders get support from the congregation. There was nothing for that from scribes. So the way in which they were funded was a system of having patrons. They had people that fundraise. They basically had to get the, the equivalent is a university professor with an endowment, and you gave to this endowment fund to support their ministry. All right? and just like us, we have tons of people inside this room that support parachurch ministries, ministries that are outside the church that are funded by private contributions, and sometimes that even goes into a fund, sort of like an endowment. And so, this is who they were. Now, I'm going to bring up some slides, if Ty you got it. All right. So, scribes, let's go to the next one. I want to give you just a little bit of a visual, so you get an idea of who we're talking about. This is a prayer shawl. For them, even to this day, Jews wear this. This actually has a scriptural precedent in the book of Numbers. And I could get into some of this I've taught before. They would use, they would make these out of 613 threads to... for what they believe is 613 mitzvot or commands of God in the Old Testament. The four corners have these four tassels okay, that is on each side of you. It has five knots apiece for the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In, beside, in between the five knots are four spaces for yah Vavheh, for the four uh, letters that pronounce the tetragrammaton or the unpronounceable name of God. And so this is kind of a common prayer shawl. There's they turned into if this is where you 're praying they 're going to take it next level, and it 's just going to be like their robe like they 're going to wear a prayer shawl and make it into like a jedi robe all right and so go to the next one get and give you an idea. Uh, this is an artist obviously rend- rendering of what they would look like if you see that their prayer shawl is not some kind of small lady' scarf or soccer memorabilia it is the it 's the full it 's the full garb, right. And, and so you can kind of think of like somebody wearing grandma's curtains with the frilly thing. Uh, sorry, that's what that does for me. Go to the, and so clergy, and not just among us, but among everywhere, tends to have clothing that separates them or recognizes them. Right? So there, there tends to be this thing, not only within Christianity or Judaism, but elsewhere. Go to the next one. So you can look at Hindus. And some of the garb that they wear, particular cut- colors, um, particular robes that they wear. Um, there is this idea of projecting our righteousness inside of our clothing. Um, go to the next one. Uh, so this is Islam, uh, which some of you may be familiar with. And so particular type of headgear, particular type of robe. Um, obviously the burqa is uh, you know a staple of their religious identity outwardly. Um, and then if you go to, like, Baptists, or well, let's go to the next one. I think it's Catholic. So you can get an idea of what the Pope wears on the left. That's the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. And then on the right is the Patriarch, which is the leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church, who has a bit of a scuffle between Russia and Ukraine going on. And, um, and so they wear outwardly uh, clothing that does this. Now, in Baptist world, uh, this is a little bit closer to what we wear. So... Um, and this is the expectation, um, I come in, it's funny, I talked to Joel about this this week, he told me I should wear a suit up top and, like, jean shorts below, and just, you would think that would make both parties happy, it actually makes both of them upset, um, of what I get, um, and so we, when I was a kid, I thought being poor, men, I'd live in a van down by the river. Now in Durango, I hope I get wealthy enough one day to buy a van and live down by the, let's get back to the Bible. Okay, so look at what Jesus says in verse 38. So pause this. In his teaching, he said, so somewhere in the middle of Jesus's main sermon, which we have part of it before, he takes a rabbit trail. And for all of the brothers that are in this room that get to preach up here sometime this year, isn't this encouraging that Jesus takes a rabbit trail? This is our verse, all right? Right? Holy ordained rabbit trail. The problem with our rabbit trails, they're not holy ordained and there's no rabbit at the end, all right? But Jesus kind of takes a rabbit trail in his teaching somewhere. He says, Beware, avoid, resist. The scribes. Who? So, now, one thing we have to notice here. He's not saying this about all scribes. He's saying, scribes who? His historical figures say this is not in, indicative of any extra-biblical documents we have about the scribes altogether or as a whole. He's describing amongst those that call themselves scribes are going to be con men. And so he's going to say, scribes who? It's not all, but it's who does the following that he's going to. To describe, you should resist them, avoid them, not follow them. The Bible is rather clear, and we've taught this here before, that there are leaders that you are called to submit to, and there are leaders you absolutely should not submit to. Let me give you a great illustration, I think, in my mind, that works for this. Maybe it doesn't do anything for you, but this is where I'm at. I'm going to use one word, and you, in your first gut reaction... Positive or negative? I'm going to use one word. You tell me positive or negative. Televangelist. Now, not everybody who's ever went on TV or social media and put their... Some have shared the gospel. Our real preachers have taught the word. Amen? But if we had to talk about the term televangelist... Wouldn't we say that sometimes it's hard for us to share the gospel or represent as Christians because people associate us with them, right? People who come and are wolves in sheep's clothing pumping out anything other than the gospel. They'll sell you prayer cloths and and dirt from Israel. It's essentially a bunch of people who get up there in fancy suits and big hair looking like they got their makeup done with a paintball gun And they, they, what are they doing, right? And doesn't it, in some ways, the fact that there are these people out there taking the name preacher or pastor or Christian, hijacking it in order to do, what is the equivalent, what are they doing? A Christian Ponzi scheme? Right? Isn't the existence of that, in some ways, undermining advancement of the kingdom of god because we who might genuinely love god get equated with those people and you can see the world mocks them whether it's they got a series on hbo you can go online and and we, we just all get kind of grouped together and so so how do they do that though Why does that work? Here's how it works. It works because the bad ones hide behind the brand of the good ones. They take the same titles. Scribe as other scribes. Pastors, other pastors. Preachers, other preacher. Apostle as other apostles. Bishop as other bishop. Christian like other Christians. They hide behind the titles, but they use the titles As an opportunity to to fleece the flock instead of serve them. And and the temptation is here for us. Come on, man. Like, it's for us, too. Because we don't want our kids listening to the garbage that is on the radio. Right? Like, you say, I like the radio. Listen, just take whatever genre you don't like. If you like country and you hate hip-hop, you don't want them listening to the Cardi B. All right? Like, Whatever. And if you love hip-hop, you don't want them listening to Florida Georgia Line, all right? Like, you get on there. So we flip it to Christian radio, and we think because Christian is from front of the radio, we check our brains out, and we don't even think about what is even being saying on that radio. Now listen, this sermon, God willing, is going to be on Christian radio. I'm not knocking Christian radio. But the idea that sometimes we put Christian on things, and then we back up, and we don't actually examine what is it teaching and what is it doing. Here's the same thing about Christian colleges. There's a lot of Christian colleges in the United States that used to be Christian. And if you sent your kids to that college, they'd worse secular education than sending them to a state school or Fort Lewis. Well, we can go all the way. Let's go all the way down to the bottom here. Baptist Church. Some people come and visit our church because it's a Baptist church. There is incredible tension Well, one, Baptist isn't even all the same denomination. you got Free Will Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church, American Baptist Church. doesn't even mean the same thing. They don't believe the same things. Then you can get, even amongst Southern Baptist churches, there are unbelievably unhealthy, non-gospel preaching churches that I don't believe that I would attend or be a part of. There's other churches that I think are unbelievably faithful. So it's like you can come to the outside of the church and look at the name, which I guess we're probably losing people because we're not named like river, tree, mountain, something. This is the opposite of where we're at. Nobody even knows what a Baptist is in Colorado, so it's probably not our problem. But, but there's the idea of that you can have a name on the outside, but what is it actually teaching and what is the church actually doing? What is it spending money on? How is it serving? Do you hear what I'm saying? There's a way to hide behind a title. And so that's how they do this. So here's what I would, I, I would say is maybe something we got to come to grips with. You realize Jesus is wearing robes, right? They strip him of it. They wear robes. Jesus wears robes. They teach. Jesus taught. I mean, even this lesson is a part of his mobile classroom. They called him rabbi. They called them rabbi. Call him master. They call them master. They call Jesus even more than that. Jesus fits these things. The difference is, what do they preach and what do they do? Do you see that distinction? What do they preach and what do they do? One apologetic... I don't know why I've been talking about Islam for like three weeks straight, but bear with me. One apologetic is I've lived in Muslim countries. And I really miss getting to share the gospel and working with Muslims. One of the things that they talk about is like Muhammad is the true prophet. And then they want to compare them to, him to Jesus... And say, Jesus is also a prophet. And I say, okay, let's walk with that for a minute. Let's back into that. Let's dig into that. If Muhammad is a prophet, the Hadith, which is an authoritative commentary on the Quran, says that he cut off the head of 800 Jews personally. That he raided caravans along the incense road. That he took sex slaves to himself, of which some he married that were adolescents. Right? And that he... Preached in the Quran that he did not know the way to God. But actually in the Quran it says that Jesus knows the way to God. And even in the Quran it says that he himself didn't know if he would go to heaven or not. Muhammad says that. Jesus on the other hand says I am the way to God. I am the way to God. I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus didn't go out and slaughter all of his enemies. He laid down his life for them. Enemies like you right Jesus did I, I don't know if you've read the new testament he didn't take sex slaves so here's my thing riddle me this batman we're going to compare two people that call themselves prophet but what did they teach what did they do and what kind of people do they produce who follow them it's these scribes who do certain things. They do these particular things that are here in Scripture. And so let's sink into what what these things are. They do these things. Let's look at them. Who, like. Um, They're they're getting at a desire, a joy word here with this word like. In Luke chapter 20, which is a parallel account of this, he, he uses the word love. So they love to walk around in long robes. And they like or love greetings in the marketplaces. So, here's the thing. Their robes are these oversized prayer shawls, grandma's curtains, and they're using outwardly these things to turn corporate prayer into a drag show. They're turning corporate prayer in a run into a runway event into a spectacle here's the thing it's about it's about people looking at them and not them looking at god and and i would argue just to be clear every one of us have sinned in this way, have we not? Can you be honest enough to say that, that you've prayed before and you thought more about what people heard you saying than you cared about God hearing you? This is not exclusive to all the mother people that meet at another church somewhere else. This is, this is a temptation and a sin for us. It's, it's Genesis fig leaves when they take the robes and they try to cover themselves, they fabricate something all the way to long prayer shop, these robes that they're wearing, between the fig leaves and the robes, they're just different fashion statements we use to run from God. To hide from God. Even if it's hiding behind our prayers and our religious clothing. We can wear a Christian t-shirt And not have a heart for God. Now, I want to feel the tension of the problem here. One of the problems here is, it's God who saw the fig leaves, slaughtered the animal. Come on, Bible-knowing Christians. Slaughtered the animals and clothed humans. Like like it's a God-ordained thing in the Old Testament that is a witness looking forward to the gospel and to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that you wore clothes. Some of you, I'm real thankful. All right? Like, I'm glad you're wearing clothes here. It's not... Can we say it this way? Wearing clothes. Maybe if there's only one statement we're going to agree on today. Wearing clothes is not wrong. I know we're in Durango, so I mean, I can't expect too much. Right? And, like, I'm thankful for this. And there's even more of this. Have you ever bought clothes that actually fit? Like, you got a favorite t-shirt, and it just feels good because it fits? And we even say these things in sports, like, look good, play good, you know what I'm saying? Or dress up, think up, right? Or even in church, you got to wear your Sunday's best, right? And is, is that all necessarily wrong? No, I, I don't think so. And I think everybody here made a decision. If you wear an business slacks today or you know all hat no cattle you're wearing wrangle, wranglers here today or anybody remember jinkos or skinny jeans nobody wears acid wash but i'm calling it it's the next thing all right A little acid wash anybody wore, somebody in here's wore rockies before and doesn't want nobody to know for my older saints in here, some of y'all have bell bottoms, skinny jeans up top, jinkos on the bottom, right? Now there's like this trend of like high waist girl pants that like go up to the base. It's like Steve Urkel pants that go like. Everybody here made a decision about the clothes you put on, right? And in Durango, we generally try to dress somewhere between a homeless person. And someone going on a hike. Like, that's kind of like the range. If you wore sweatpants here today, you made a decision to be comfortable. Alright? And if you wore a three-piece suit, like, I feel nothing like, I wear a suit sometimes. Like, it's got its place. I don't think that the center focus here is actually even what you're wearing. I, I think that that maybe matters What I think is the question of, what is your why? Why are you wearing that? Why are you putting on a belt buckle? Why are you wearing no shoe? And even more, what is that doing to your heart? Because an obsession with trying to project an image and impress others... That obsession is suffocating for our souls. Because you are not your clothes. The real you is underneath there. And clothing can be a thing on the outside that suffocates the soul on the inside. Christians, I've I've said this before. Our clothes, while being a witness to the gospel looking forward are really, for us, cultural camo. It's cultural camo. So we can blend in our mission field and not get hung up on looking in such a way that people focus more on the outside of us than the message that we share about Jesus. Do you hear me? In in, in France, they have less clothes than Americans, but they're all nicer clothes. When I lived in France, I dressed nicer. Because when you go there, people expect you... They never understand Americans wearing sweatpants on the plains. They don't. And if you dress like that, it would be a stumbling block. Just the same way sometimes if you wear a tie in Durango, it's a stumbling block. But you put on a vest like you're about to hike, people are like, this is one of us. Right? If you go to Africa, you ain't going to wear the same stuff maybe that you wear here. Or India. Who cares about clothes? It's cultural camo. The message you carry on the inside is more important than the clothes you wear on the outside. So, says that they love this, though. It's that they don't love the message. They don't love the soul. They don't love what's unseen. They love what's on the outside. They like this. Look at what else they like, Where they love. They walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces. Now, wait a minute. I like... Lo- Hamsters are here. I love supporting people that are in our church, that are my friends, that have businesses. You know, I have a buddy that has a haircut spot. Like, that's where I go get my haircut, because he's one of those. I like going to places where people know me. How about this? I would argue we have the longest meet and greet of any church in the nation, right? We ain't winning it much, but that's what we got, all right? I love that. I love looking out in our church and it being difficult to get you to sit down because our church here gathering together is so warm. Don't you love that? Like, I love that you greet one another. It's better than you despising one another if I had to choose between the two. Right? I love that. How, I, I, like, I like going to Walmart and seeing one person I know. It gets up to 20, and I'm on the other side of this thing. Right? Come on now. We, if you walk up to a high school game, and you have to sit on the opposing stands, and they're booing the game, but you're walking up trying to find a seat where there's no seats, and they start booing. Doesn't it feel terrible to be the alien and the foreigner? Nobody wants to be the tourist that knows nobody and feels unwelcome. We love, we were created to be in community with other people. It feels good to have a secret handshake, to dab people up, to see people you know that hug your neck and care about you. They're just like there's nothing wrong with clothing inherently. There's nothing inherently wrong with greeting one another and loving people and caring about people that you're in community with. Amen. But it's the question of when does that feed into our pride? When does that become toxic for us and some listen, something that God created good begin to poison us? And so we go around glad handing. We go around politicking. We go around being lobbyists. We want to be seen as people that are known. It's about us, and it's not about actually loving others. We want to be famous. Look at the next one. It says that they love, 39, to have the best seats in the synagogue, best seats, and the places of honor at feasts. The Bible in 1 Peter 2.17 says honor everyone or respect everyone. Honor is a good thing. We're here to show as Christians honor to one another. If anything, we have a culture inside the church that honors nobody. Honor is a good thing. And even say this, doesn't honor and the best seat have its time and place? Like, I remember my grandpa has his chair. And if grandpa comes in from working and I'm sitting in his chair, you know who has to move? Me. That's honor, right? On the bus in France, you would have an elderly lady come onto the bus. Young men should stand up from their seats and give that to this older lady, Amen. Is there anything wrong with giving her the preferential seat? No. I think it's good and right and appropriate. Let me even go even further. And I think the uh, incredible example. Uh, I'm doing a couple uh, premarital counselings and counselings for weddings. And so we've got some wedding planning that involved with. And, you know, you go to weddings and almost inevitably at the reception, there is a special table set up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And usually there's like special glasses and tables. And at the center of it all is the bride and the groom. Then they're going to come out and they're going to have like a first dance or like a dance with the the mom. And then like a first dance and all these kind of things. They have the best seats in the whole house. Amen. They have honored positions in that wedding. And I would argue that's right and good. You know what is not right or good or appropriate? An ambitious, drunk third cousin. Coming to the middle of the wedding and sitting down where the bride and groom belong. Right? The groom goes to take the first dance with his mother and he cuts in. Right? Who would look back at that and say, that's right. Jesus is not saying... That there's not a place to honor people. That there's not sometimes to give them seats that fit that. It's it's 100% appropriate. And the Bible teaches that. What he's talking about is how we can have an addiction and an ambition that everywhere we go, we need people to honor us. That we want to be the center of attention. We want people to know us. Right? It's what does that honor do to us? If you stay married in this church 60 years, goodness gracious, we want to honor you, right? Ain't nothing wrong with that. But if at every juncture you have to have your way and be the center of everything, that's unbelievably toxic. So, so this starts to take shape, right, of like what kinds of scribes are we thinking about here? Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. Now, I'm going to talk about this next week some, so I'm not going to drive all the way into this. But one aspect of this devouring is uh, back in the day when they widows who tend to be the primary target of con men and Ponzi schemes, they would have an estate, like kind I'm of like an estate of things that happens in estate sales. You see that before. And they would scoop in to try to secure that as a part of their endowment to fund the scribes because they needed patrons. And so they would uh, uniquely take advantage of widows. Now, we can't really do this anymore because the government has replaced this job with themselves. You ain't got nothing left over after the government comes through and then the kids have a civil war over whatever scraps are left. It's full vulture season. But it's the idea that they would try to in that time Come in and try to take advantage of widows. And God, I'll talk about this more next week, but God has a special place in his heart for widows and a special plan for widows and a special ministry for widows. You better be careful what you do to God's girls. And instead of serving widows in the community, they stole Last one says that for a pretense or for a show, they make long prayers. I, I don't know if maybe this drives the nail in the coffin, but as a pastor, I feel pretty confident I can say this. Y'all know that praying is good, right? Like praying is good. And even when Jarrett asked me a question during my elder review uh, a few month, many months ago, many moons ago, um, one of the things he asked me is like, what am I most disappointed in? I don't, I'm probably screwing the question up, but tell me if I'm wrong. Disappointed in as far as my leadership in my time here, or what do I feel is the greatest weakness of our church, or what do I feel is the most um, I wish was better? And the answer without a doubt to me is that I wish we we were a better prayer culture in our church. And I, I don't know how, but I'm I'm praying and seeking about how to lead in such a way that our church puts prayer at the center and that the prayer meeting at our church is not the most skippable event that we do. Because from my heart, what I see is that there are some things that the church only has through prayer. There are some things that God will only do among us through prayer. I don't care how... Good the sermons are, or bad the sermons are, the teaching and other things, there, so, there is a place that prayer has in a church. And I think many of us are embarrassed because we don't know how to actually pray. And so for me, my answer to that question has been, if I could have one place, it's not that we would grow by a thousand in numbers. It's not that we would even have a new building, even though by God we could use some parking. Okay, like it, It's not that we would have some explosive youth ministry. If there's one thing I wish we could... Just get a hold of in our church a little better than what we have. it would just be beating down the door of heaven and learning to pray. Praying is good. Amen. It's good, man. And once you figure that out, man, you'll get addicted to it, and it's God, God just going to do things. But here's the thing: praying is good. A pretense for praying is a show. It's a production. It's turning spiritual communion with God into an act. It's not caring about being heard by God. It's caring about being heard by man. It's about being heard by man. And and let's be real. This is dangerous because some of us in here have prayed before, right? And the why of our prayers and the heart behind our prayers, I I don't know what the motivation is. But the Lord Jesus does. God knows our hearts. I've heard it said that when a man prays, he ceases in his prayer closet when nobody sees. That when a man prays or a woman prays and they enter their prayer closet and nobody sees them, that is the true mark of their spirituality. Not stages. Or leading things. Or deacon or elder or house church leader. It's communion with God. And they hijacked all the sacredness that that is. And they turned it into a badge. Here's what Jesus says is the result of their activity. They will receive greater condemnation. Condemnation comes from the same word for damnation. Comes from, in Luke, he talks about, uses the word punishment. James teaches us not many should aspire to be teachers, so they will be judged with a stricter judgment. And it says that there is a hell that's even hotter waiting for these people. The severity of a lie depends on its proximity to the truth. And so because they assume these positions of authority the fact that they're inside of God's people and they're not some atheist on the internet it actually makes it worse. And I don't know what to do with greater condemnation or a theological system. We know there's rewards in heaven and apparently there is greater condemnation for those that not only themselves are on a highway to hell but they're taking as many people with them as they can. Greater condemnation. That's heavy. That is, for every person in here that is a hypocrite, we deserve condemnation. Now you like, I know what a hypocrite is. These people, those people. The difference in Christianity is, is that Christianity says we all, at one time in our life, and in different spaces in our lives, we're all hypocrites. We affirm one thing with our mouth and we do another in our life. And we deserve for that condemnation on whatever level we get it. Now, we may not have a pulpit and a stage like Benny Hinn, but we got somebody in our lives that are experiencing our witness of to the truth or to falsehood. And there's greater condemnation. The beauty of the gospel, listen to me if you get nothing else, this is where we do not preach here morals. The beauty of the gospel is Is that that condemnation for your hypocrisy has been paid and absorbed in the person of Jesus on the cross? Somebody say, Amen. Where you have fronted as one thing and been another, that condemnation that you rightly, that hell that you rightly deserve, the Father poured out on the Son. He nailed it there, taking away your penalty and your sin and your condemnation, that you might be a new creation and walk away free, no matter what anybody else says about you. Romans eight thirty one says, "Now therefore, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Condemnation has no place in the life of a Christian. Now you screw up, I promise you, the Holy Spirit's going to come and bring conviction. Amen." But there ain't no condemnation. That's been paid for. That's done with. That's the beauty of the cross. I I know that you guys, if you know one Bible verse, and you snuck in here among us, you don't know no Bible. You know one Bible verse, it's probably this one. Listen to this verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not, Perish. That's condemnation. But have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, listen, to condemn the world. That's not the point of the son coming to the cross, was to condemn the world. But in order that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, therefore, or whoever believes in him is not condemned. If you will put your faith in the Son, you are not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You stand under condemnation outside of Christ. You're condemned already for your sins, some of which we've talked about here, others we might not have. Condemned already. Because why is that? He's not believing in the name of the only Son of God. Because there's one way of escape from the wrath and condemnation and punishment to come, and it's the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first scribe that comes to him, I'm going to end here. The first scribe that comes to him, is, he sees Jesus like deal up the Sadducees. Remember us talking about that, and he's just compelled by Jesus. Like he's just there's something about this thing that's kind of like. I don't know why I come. I don't know why I'm seeking. I don't know why I'm here. I'm just, I'm I'm coming. And then he comes. And he's from this group of people that sometimes are hostile to Jesus. But he comes solo. He's a person of peace. And he says, ask Jesus a question. And Jesus answers him with Bible. And he loves Jesus' answers. And he answers back Bible. And he just gets kind of giddy. Right? We talk about this. He's just throwing the ball around with Jesus. And they're having this beautiful conversation. Life-changing even conversation. And he's excited and he's passionate. And not far from the kingdom, and I, I believe by God's grace, I, I pray that he made it in the kingdom. Do you remember what it was like when you got saved? Do you remember that joy of forgiveness of sins? Do you remember the conviction you were under? Do you remember the peace? Do you remember what that felt? Do you remember the day one, right? It was like falling in love with your spouse, and you were you were just in man. Do you I mean, before you ever went to Sunday school, you ever attended a church, learned that you're supposed to wear a collar, and you know like before you memorized the wanna verses. Do you remember your first love? Do you remember it? The Christian life church is in a, it's simultaneously amnesia and deja vu. The Christian life is amnesia and deja vu. I know I've forgotten this before. Right? Do you remember when you thought Job was a job? If someone asked you to look up a book in the Bible, you got no idea. But you love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Before you were a pastor, before you were on staff, when you just did things because you loved God and you wanted Him, you, you didn't have to attend anything. You wanted to be places. Do you remember that? Do you remember when your faith was, Jesus loves me, this I know, For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Do you remember that? Or is it so cluttered with religion and robes and seats and titles that you've lost something At the heart. You've lost your why. Can I pray for you? If you're here today and he's not your teacher, he's not your rabbi, he's not your master, and he's not your Lord, the Bible says we have time afforded to us to make a decision about who Jesus is is he a teacher like all the rest of the scribes or is he different is he able to be ignored or is he our Lord whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved and if that's you here today I want to With all that's in me, beg you to repent of sin and turn and trust the Lord with all your heart. I'm telling you, it's the best decision I ever made. And there's a lot of other people in here too. If you're a Christian in here, my brothers and sisters who've jumped in with us, and you've lost a little bit of your why, and it's a little bit too much formality, and it's a little bit too much your title, And it's a little bit too much about money, or who will see you, or glad handing, or seats, or honor, or any of the other mess that we can make it about. Can I love you enough to ask you to repent? To repent of your hypocrisy? And repent of making it about anything other than truly about God? Those are two different groups of people in this room. And I'm going to pray for both of you to have business with God right now. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven into the lives of some here who don't know you. That you might come and rip away all the external show and get right at their heart. God, would you save sinners here as you've been so faithful to do for thousands of years? God, would you come and bring heavy conviction and power and life and peace? Undeniable, irresistible, and draw them to yourself. God, I pray as well for my brothers and sisters in here who have left their first love. And who've made it about anything else. God, we come as a people repenting of our hypocrisy, mine included. God, we come repenting of making it out to be something it's not. God, would you return us to the heart of worship? Would you remind us of your love and show us again the why behind all of this stuff. God, help us to discover you again. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, everyone said. Amen. Would you stand and respond in worship? Amen. Uh, Now for a benediction. May the good things that God gives you lead you to worship Him and not run from Him. Amen? Cool. Appreciate you guys. Love you. See you next week.